0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Florida has played a major role in the film industry. We'll visit the former Shamrock Studios in Winter Park.
1: We were here with a picture called Johnny Tiger, which Universal released in 66, but we shot it in 64, and we did our interiors in here.
2: We'll discuss
0: Henry Flagler's publishing company,
2: in order to attract people to Florida, you had to advertise. And at that time, print advertisement was the number one medium.
0: And talk about the age of fear in Florida with historian and author Gary Mormino. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's music from a dance scene in the 1966 film Johnny Tiger, where Chad Everett, as the title character, does pelvic thrusts, hip shakes, and jumps with abandon in a Florida bar. Johnny Tiger is a Seminole caught between tradition and modern society. The movie was shot in central Florida, including at Shamrock Studios in Winter Park. Florida played a major role in the film industry from the very beginning, particularly in Jacksonville. Rodney Cavan worked throughout Florida in the 1950s and 60s as a film director and production manager.
1: Yes, uh, I got this second hand from Dick Pope, who founded Cypress Gardens, and was a walking encyclopedia of the motion picture business, and had a lot to do with promoting it in the state of Florida. And uh, according to him, in 1911 through 13, that era, Jacksonville was the world wintertime headquarters of the motion picture industry, because guess what? Up in Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is where the movies were made, it snowed in the wintertime. So they came as far south as Flegler's Railroad would go. And at one time there were 85 companies working in Jacksonville. And I understand in 1912 there was something over $100 million gross business from those companies. In 1912 money. And uh, Hal Roach was there, Biograph, and a lot of little people. But uh, it went. Because of two reasons. First of all, there were a lot of small companies there that didn't bother their budgets too tightly. And if they needed a fire truck going by, they'd simply set up a camera on a Jacksonville street and pull a fire alarm box. And they'd do their car chases amongst the streetcars without advising the streetcar company. And that sort of upset the city fathers. So they were not too friendly at that point. But at that stage, the industry was beginning to move west. And that kind of ended uh, the big hub in Jacksonville at that time.
0: Phil Simpson writes about film and is president of the Popular Culture Association and American Culture Association.
3: The film industry did not begin in uh, California, as many people might assume. Uh, It actually began in New York City and Chicago, but uh, the early film industry did do quite a bit uh, down south, uh, including in Florida. And in fact, one of the first early film studios was Calum, and that was set up in Jacksonville, Florida. And they did a lot with uh, early silent film, including giving Oliver Hardy his start in silent film. So I thought that was a really impressive uh, accomplishment of the Florida film industry back then. And uh, Jacksonville uh, initially was quite welcoming toward the early film industry. And in fact, the mayor there provided a lot of economic incentives for the film industry to set up in Jacksonville. Now, in about 1917, uh, the mayor had a reform candidate running against him, and the reform candidate had pledged to do something about the disruption that the film industry was causing in the streets of Jacksonville uh, because, as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of disruption that a film company causes in the normal uh, day-to-day in any town. Also, the sensibilities of some citizens were offended because The film companies would sometimes stage scenes in public on Sundays, and that didn't go over well. The reform candidate did win, and uh, so therefore Jacksonville suddenly was not so friendly to the early film industry. Uh, There were other companies uh, in the early silent era in Florida, including uh, the Norman Film Manufacturing Company. And they were significant because they uh, used all African-American actors as their cast, and this was for segregated audiences in Florida. But it did provide an opportunity for early black actors to perform in uh, heroic leading roles, and it was a non-stereotypical kind of role. Uh, and so I thought that was also very significant to know about early Florida film history. So the f- major film studios began to set up in Hollywood, California because that was a much more economically friendly environment for them and began moving away from Florida and other cities in the South. But still, there's a pretty significant early presence in Florida, the film industry.
0: After the major film studios moved to California following World War I, Florida remained a popular place for location shooting. By the mid-20th century, smaller film studios appeared around the state, and some were involved in major productions. Bruce O'Donohue is the owner of Control Specialists, a traffic engineering and management company. His business is in a building
4: that used to be Shamrock Film Studios in Winter Park. We moved into this building in 1995. And at the time, we get our bucket trucks uh, service, our businesses and then uh, traffic signal systems and operations and maintenance. And so, uh, the gentleman, Gordon Causey, who came and certified vehicles, said, You're not going to believe this, but I used to work for Davy Tree two doors down. And well, uh, he made it sound like 1961 or 62. He said, uh, They were shooting a project and they needed a 60 foot bucket truck, and they got Davy Tree. They rented this truck, and I took the cameraman up and he says, That yard you've got back there? He says, uh, they dumped a a truckload of uh, white sand and planted some palm trees and from 60 feet up with the camera, it made it look like you were looking at a Polynesian island. And he says, it was pretty spectacular. He says, that place was called Shamrock Studios. And he says, uh, and I think they ended up making a movie and uh, eventually moved out to Hollywood. So that was kind of fun. And he showed us all around the building, said, this is what this was for. This is what that was for, because he was part of that film at the time.
0: After Shamrock Studios left the building in the 1970s, it was occupied by a pest control company and Palmer Electric. Current owner Bruce O'Donohue says the building design is clearly best suited for a movie production company.
4: The offices in the front of the building seem to be sort of executive management uh, style offices. Um, this is a building that I'm not sure an architect would be proud of. It looks like it just sort of keeps going like the Energizer bunny. I mean, this is 16,000 square feet under roof, uh, which is hard to believe. And when you see the, the warehouse, it was really a soundstage. And, and again, the bathrooms are not small bathrooms. They were large because they were showers and dressing rooms. So it was, it's a big place filmmaker Rodney Cavan.
1: We were here with a picture called Johnny Tiger, which Universal released in 66, but we shot it in 64, and we did our interiors in here. We had uh, an exterior location in Longwood at the old hotel, and these were the hotel room interiors that, uh, for the scenes that took place there, and then we had a bedroom scene for the house that was out on our location at Waikiva Springs, which is just a false front. So we were here about three days, and it was a nice studio. It worked very well, Robert Taylor, Chad Everett and Brenda Scott were the three stars involved with the shots here.
4: Building owner Bruce O'Donohue. What we're using as our, our business warehouse was originally uh, used for soundstage and, uh, and production for whatever they were filming, whether it was, my understanding, it could have been commercials, could have been second unit production for movies, uh, TV shows. Uh, and, and so... Uh, when you look at the ceiling, you notice that there's electrical outlets and other pieces of equipment that was probably used for uh, what they had to do for, whether it was scaffolding or other equipment, uh, clearly not a normal warehouse. It was definitely used for, uh, for film production.
0: Filmmaker Rodney Cabin.
1: Right now, of course, it's a warehouse, but as a studio, this was a wide open space until the production company moved in. Then we have the setup. Uh, which was three walls the entrance doors and all the things like that and, the, and all the furniture and props to make it look like a real interior scene. And the floor was a clutter. It would have light stands with the lights and grip equipment and the various things like that. Cables snaked all over the floor for the light distribution to the lights. And then, of course, the camera and the camera dolly, and they had to keep getting things clear so it could move around as, as needed for the shot. So it was a clutter in a way, but an entirely different clutter than it is today. Typical movie set.
0: Cavan has fond memories of working on the film Johnny Tiger.
1: It was Robert Taylor's last feature. He did uh, two made-for-television movies for MGM before he passed away. And, and this he looked for as a crowning change in his career. He said, I'm 50 years old. Why am I making love to 22-year-olds in these pictures? He said, this is my change from a romantic lead to a character lead. And he really looked forward to it. In fact. He was willing to do anything to promote the movie. He was so thrilled about the change. Very nice gentleman. I enjoyed working with Robert very much.
0: In addition to owning the building that formerly housed Shamrock Studios, Bruce O'Donohue has another tie to the film industry in Florida, appearing in the 1989 Ron Howard film
4: Parenthood. So I was president of the College Park Little League Uh, they needed extras uh, for the Little League scenes and uh, coach Miller for the city of Orlando called me and and then uh, said heads up you're gonna get a phone call from these folks and so we ended up getting 36 uh, boys from the College Park Little League and uh, actually they I was not going to be in the film but I was going to be there to make sure everybody was safe and uh, Robert Stewart city commissioner today was supposed to be the base umpire for us and he was a umpire for the league and uh, Robert called me one day right before the shooting he says I can't be there and so I called the casting director I said I'm short somebody and she said well why don't you do it I said all right I guess so so I just did my little job uh, out there I was with him anyway and then the last day Ron Howard came up and said hey sign this we we want you to make a declarative in the film about uh, uh, Steve Martin's son catching the, the winning ball and winning the game and okay so uh, and lo and behold, it made it to the final cut. So I was an official actor, and it was a great, fun, fun time in 1989. It was the, the very exciting all around Orlando for all the different places that were being used and people, you know, being in the film. He's out of
0: there! In 1987, both Disney and Universal announced that they would be building film production studios in Central Florida, in addition to movie-based theme parks the name Hollywood East was being used to describe what Orlando would become.
3: Phil Simpson says that didn't happen. It's odd that it turned out that way because Florida truly was in a very enviable position uh, to be Hollywood East. And it's still to me a little uh, disconcerting that it played out the way it did. Uh, New York and Florida during the 1970s and 1980s were, they were the second busiest locations for films shot outside of California. I mean, they were neck and neck. They were truly rivals, you know, for that honor of second place, and that's, that was significant. The smart money would have been on Florida uh, because of the year-round weather being so favorable for film shoots, uh, because of uh, an infrastructure that supported uh, such endeavor, uh, because of an inexpensive labor force. And then, of course, you had uh, the opening of Disney MGM Studios, and that was in 1989. And then Universal Studios Florida, and I believe that was in 1990. These were primarily theme parks, but they also had film studios attached to them. And so there were many TVs and, and movies that were produced in those studios. And of course, Florida itself is a prime tourist destination. So you had the theme parks and a studio component to those theme parks, and. They were set. I mean, it was really primed for that kind of endeavor to succeed here. But something interesting happened, and that was Florida's tax incentives for filmmaking began to dry up. And so by the early 2000s, most of those had gone away. There was also a high-profile failure of a tax-incentivized company in Florida that was set up in Palm Beach in 2012, and that was Digital Domain. And so there was a lot of bad feeling in the state legislature after that uh, because of all the money that had been lost, all that upfront investment was just gone. And so after about 2012, you didn't see much with tax incentives for filmmakers in Florida. So really what's happening right now is that a lot of this is uh, a lot of the filmmaking activity has shifted over to Georgia, in particular the Atlanta area. And uh, there's a lot of uh, creative filmmaking types in Florida that are actually either commuting back and forth to Georgia or actually moving there because that's where the the business is. An
0: example of Florida film production moving to Georgia can be seen with the film The Unknowns. It tells the uniquely Florida story of the highwayman artists, the African-American landscape painters from Fort Pierce, but the film was shot in Georgia. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like the Florida Frontiers Festival and the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium. That's myfloridahistory.org. joining us now is ben dibiase director of educational resources for the florida historical society and archivist at the library of florida history in coco
2: ben when people hear the name henry flagler
0: they naturally think of his railroad
2: but he had many other business interests yeah that's right ben and henry flagler is probably best known as the developer of of Florida's East Coast as we know it. He, of course, developed the Florida East Coast Railroad Company and the Florida East Coast Hotel Company. Flagler first came to Florida sometime in the 1880s. He was one of the wealthiest people in the United States at that time, was a a partner with, with Rockefeller and had founded what became Standard Oil. He was involved in real estate operations and and several other businesses in other parts of the country, but came to Florida in the 1880s and decided he wanted to spend what became the rest of his life developing Florida's East Coast and and developing a rail system. And that's, of course, his legacy, I think, is wrapped up in that the history of the railroad. However, as you pointed out, there are a number of other businesses that go along with the operation of that type of enterprise. And what we're talking about today is, is a printing company and something that probably would Wouldn't come to to many people's minds when we think about the FEC and the Florida East Coast Hotel Company. But in order to attract people to Florida, you had to advertise. And at that time, print advertisement was the number one medium for advertising. And that included pamphlets, that was uh, newspapers, they were brochures, material that would have been sent throughout the country, throughout the world to attract people to Flagler's hotels. Because, of course, you can build it. And, of course, the old adage if you build it, they will come. Well, (laughs) you need to build it but also advertise it, and folks can come down to Florida. And they they poured a lot of resources very early on, even in the early 1890s, especially around St. Augustine, where the main crux of the Flagler Hotel system, including the Ponce de Leon and the Alcazar, those hotels were right in in downtown St. Augustine. So a lot of the operations were were centered in in St. Augustine. And it really starts in 1894, when Flagler's company buys the local newspaper and became the the Herald in 1894. But it wasn't until 1899 that Flagler and a gentleman by the name of D.E. Thompson, as well as a few other Flagler-related affiliates, acquired the three other local newspapers and printers in and around uh, St. John's County, including St. Augustine. They consolidated these operations into what would become the Record Company. And the Record Company, the main goal, at least of their business, was to produce a local paper, which became the St. Augustine Record. But they also produced a lot of these pamphlets. They had a division devoted to the production of promotional literature, but also a lot of internal material related to the Florida East Coast Railway and hotel operations.
0: Now you have here many different very colorful pamphlets, brochures, and other promotional materials that were printed by Flagler's The Record Company.
2: Yeah, that's right, Ben. What we're looking at today is kind of a collection of a lot of different pamphlets that were produced by the record company. They were all printed in-house in St. Augustine. And again, it's important to think about that kind of operation. I mean, a printing press on its own, a commercial printing press, it's not like today. We didn't have computers and things like that. Everything was laid out by hand. The commercial machinery required to produce these types of materials, including newspapers, but also different various size promotional literature. Um, it required a lot of manpower. At one point, the company employed around 100 people, which for a small town like St. Augustine was you know one of the largest employers in the entire city, worked for the record company in, in various roles. But what we're looking at today are some of the early promotional pamphlets. This one right here dates from about 1915, 1916, it's simply entitled East Coast of Florida. It's got this really nice, beautiful color cover. On the inside, it's the it says here, list of hotels and general information for the season of 1902-1903, published by the Florida East Coast Railway Company. And of course, it lists when the trains are running, has these wonderful reproductions of the line drawings of the hotels photographs of different hotels, how to get to certain areas and towns throughout Florida. And, of course, it was all done on the FEC Railway, but it was a guide for anybody coming to Florida. And if we flip here to the back cover, it says here the east coast of Florida is a paradise regained, and it has this wonderful color image of the state of Florida. It shows the rail line, and at the very bottom, you almost need a magnifying glass to look at it. It says the record company, St. Augustine, Florida, uh, which is, of course, where it was produced. What we're looking at here is another color production for the season of 1901 to 1902. We also have this great pamphlet. It was a guide to the Alcazar Hotel Baths, which was very popular, especially in the 1890s, beginning of the 20th century. People came to Florida really for the health reasons, so they had these wonderful indoor swimming pools and baths and these little electric shock treatment therapy centers. And we have wonderful photographs printed inside of these pamphlets. And again, this was done at the record company. But as I mentioned before, it wasn't only material designed for tourists. We also have material that was designed for employees of the FEC Railroad and and Hotel Company. Here we're looking at a, a publication from the Pension Department outline. This is dated January 1st, 1925. And it outlines some of the rules and regulations regarding pensions for employees of the of the company so there was a various different types again different sizes these are all different sizes you can think about the operation of this kind of press was fairly complex
0: now flagler's east coast railway still exists is the record company still in
2: business well, Flagler, the Flagler Corporation sold their interest in the record company in 1942. So from about 1894 until 1942, the, the Flagler Company was in control of operations. Now, the St. Augustine record does still exist today. It's still the primary newspaper for St. Augustine and much of St. John's County. It's now owned by other interests, and the record company is, is essentially gone now. Okay, well, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you.
0: Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa.
2: Just who do you think you are? You're never gonna get my love.
0: This is Florida Frontiers. Historian Gary Mormino has been optimistic in his depiction of Florida's past. Now that he's documenting Florida in the 21st century, his optimism is fading. Holly Baker is a public historian at the University of Central Florida and has this report.
5: Historian Dr. Gary Mormino is the author of the 2005 book, Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, A Social History of Modern Florida. In the book, Dr. Mormino discusses the history of Florida from World War II to the year 2000. He is currently writing a sequel to his book with the working title Florida and the Age of Fear, 2000 to 2017.
6: The title now is Florida and the Age of Fear. This is a book uh, looking at Florida from the beginning of the new century and new millennium all the giddiness of Y2K through 9-11, through the greatest recession since the Great Depression, and ending uh, with an eerie bookend with uh, the Orlando Pulse, the election of Donald Trump, and Hurricane Irma. It's, I think, how I've observed Florida. I I think I wrote Land of Sunshine, uh, still pretty optimistic about the Sunshine State. There was a lot of giddiness and optimism in the book. The very title, Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, the idea that there's something special about a place that has a thousand miles of seashore and sand dunes and palm trees and a subtropical climate. But more implicit in it was the idea of second chances, a better life in Florida.
5: As Dr. Mormino explains, The presidential election of 2000 was one of the most memorable and controversial elections in the history of the United States. The election put Florida in the spotlight when it became clear that Floridians would decide the presidential election.
6: The new century, the new millennium opens with uh, Y2K and then almost immediately uh, you have the election. The 2000 election is one of the most exciting elections in American history, and Florida is not a mere participant. Florida is kind of the battleground state. Governor Jeb Bush was the brother of the Republican candidate, George W. Bush. Al Gore is running as a Democrat Still today, I mean, prognosticators are talking about what if, what if there had not been the crazy butterfly design ballot in Palm Beach that awarded so many votes to Pat Buchanan, who had not even campaigned in Palm Beach. What if Catherine Harris had not been Secretary of State? I mean, you go on and on. And then, of course, it's the most dramatic election. night. If you think prior to the the 2000 election, election nights were pretty boring, in America. It had really not been since 1960 that there had been a cliffhanger, and you had this wonderful seesaw. The stations originally said that Gore had won Florida, and then they corrected themselves, and then Bush won Florida in in probably the most dramatic election of our lifetime.
5: Less than a year after the 2000 election, America was forever changed by the events of September 11, 2001. On 9-11, nearly 3,000 people were killed, when hijackers who trained to fly in Florida carried out the worst attack on American soil since Pearl Harbor. Dr. Mormino.
6: 9-11 is a a seminal event in in American history. Uh, Young Floridians now will be remembering this as their Pearl Harbor when they're octogenarians. It was more than simply Floridians watching television. But it's how 9-11 was so intimately involved with Florida. Half of the conspirators lived and trained in Florida. We all know about the conspirators learning to uh, take off but not to land. And in some ways, that wasn't a coincidence. Uh, Florida is the perfect place if you want to be anonymous, if you want to blend in and not be noticed. Only one of three Floridians is a native to the state. It's interesting that their choices were places uh, in in Broward County, Sarasota County, Charlotte County, places you could easily blend in.
5: The tragic events of 9-11 have had lasting economic, cultural, and political effects on American society. Dr. Mormino.
6: Implicit in the title, The Age of Fear, is is a new age of fear in, in Florida. You can look at gun ownership in Florida, absolutely spiked after 9-11. Anyone who's flown on a plane pre and post 9-11 knows how different it is now, to say the least. Our vocabulary words we didn't use pre-9/11 no-fly list, color-coded terror alerts, shoe bombers, WMD. uh, We we really create a new vocabulary surrounding 9/11.
5: Dr. Mormino's upcoming book, Florida and the Age of Fear, 2000 to 2017, also discusses the hurricane season of 2004, the Great Recession of the late 2000s, and more recent events.
6: The book ends with uh, Orlando Pulse. And then followed by the, the shock of the Trump election, which uh, most people did not see coming. So, this was a roller coaster experience these last 17 years. Exciting, kind of melodramatic, draining, tedious, and yet exciting at the same time.
5: For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, radio and podcast producer with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, join the conversation on Facebook and find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben Biassi, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.